Recovery Elevator, episode 220. I think that there's a sober person trying to get out of every drunk person. It's just how much that you let that voice in. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. If you're listening today as a normal drinker or someone who doesn't struggle with alcohol, I want to welcome you to the podcast. Sometimes I forget that about 20% of my listeners are those who are gathering information about addiction towards alcohol. So I want to welcome you and say thank you for listening. In the future, I think the healing process will be a more collaborative effort. It won't be the people in recovery in these rooms and Al-Anon in other rooms. I think there will be a joint healing venture in the future. But at this moment, thank you everybody for listening, including the normal drinkers. Guys, we have an absolutely great episode today. The interviewee, his name is Nick. He's from Vancouver, Canada. He's 32 years old. He's been alcohol-free for 111 days. And he talks about how the voice of reason inside got louder and louder. Information about the Recovery Elevator Asia Adventure trip taking place January 20th to January 31st, 2020 is up on the recoveryelevator.com website. You can go check out the itinerary, prices, availability, all stuff like that. It's going to be an incredible trip. If you do like the Recovery Elevator podcast and want to support us, a great way to do this is simply leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to check us out on Instagram. I'm always posting little snippets, tidbits of information of how to go about this journey alcohol-free. Okay, now let's hear from Cafe RE. The most important thing I've learned while doing the Recovery Elevator podcast is we can't do this alone. Believe me, I tried for over two years and it didn't work. So here's the good news. With Cafe RE, you get access to a confidential and unsearchable Facebook group, which is capped at 300 members to ensure intimacy. Then you get access to the Cafe RE forum outside of Facebook, which means you don't need a Facebook account to be part of Cafe RE. Both are private and only members can see who is in the groups and what is said. In the forum and Facebook group, you get instant accountability and genuine connection with others who also wish to lead a life without alcohol. In Cafe RE, you'll find that being sober is a tremendous opportunity and not a sacrifice. For just $19 a month, you too can join the conversation. You can be paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, online meetups, attend in-person meetups and retreats, participate in book club, movie club, and more. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive this setup fee. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's get started. Today I want to talk with you about depression, anxiety, and stress. And after this episode, I'll talk to you about where I'm at with depression. If you remember episode 118, it was titled The Black Dog. This came out May 22nd of 2017. I talk about my struggle with depression. It had reached an acute moment at the time, and after the interview with Nick, I'll talk to you about where I'm at now with depression. Okay, let's do this. As 13th century Sufi mystic Rumi says, these pains you feel are messengers. Listen to them. So depression is a bitch, anxiety is the worst, and stress can wreak havoc on quality of life. I used alcohol to muffle these messengers until they became too intense, and I had to listen. The message was loud and clear. Quit drinking and stop living in the past and future. Depression is when mental energies are stuck in the past. Anxiety is when we are living in the future. 
and stress accumulates when an end goal is more important than the task at hand. What the mind can't see, and we will dedicate countless units of mental energy, both in the past and future, to seek a resolution, is that liberation from all three of these dysfunctions resides in the present moment. Let's talk about depression. There's an undeniable connection between alcohol and depression. After all, alcohol is a depressant. The good news is that the bulk of melancholy should lift, as was my experience, after the removal of alcohol within a matter of months. However, if depression lingers, a couple of things are probably taking place. Part of your identity, at the unconscious level, is someone who is comfortable being unhappy. And the thought of a happy life and the unknown is uncomfortable. Another reason is you're constantly dwelling in the past for ways situations could have been handled differently in hopes for a better future. Now, don't get me wrong. It's prudent to access the past to make better informed decisions in the present for a better future. But if we're always living in the past and the past consists of depression, then we've already written the future. If you are still experiencing depression in your alcohol-free life, don't worry. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with you. All you have to do is direct your mental energy into the present moment. You may have to repeat this process one, two, three, a couple thousand times, but eventually you'll get the hang of it. And guys, I'm not asking you to do anything that I haven't done myself. Okay, let's talk about anxiety. So anxiety levels should also return to baseline after removing alcohol in your life. In a 1991 study, researchers tested 171 hospitalized males with an alcohol use disorder, 40% of whom reported significant anxiety on admission. One question about their psychological state, they perceived themselves as chronically prone to anxiety and described their drinking as a means to self-medicate their discomfort. After two weeks of abstinence, however, their anxiety levels returned to normal. At a three-month follow-up, anxiety declined further. For those who relapsed, anxiety shot back up again. This mirrors my experience when I quit alcohol, and also when I did more field research and relapsed. So anxiety, which always has a relation with a future moment, is the absolute worst, especially after heavy bouts of drinking. I get this. Anxiety was the primary driver for my decision to quit drinking. I remember a time in Spain when anxiety got so acute, I jumped into a taxi cab and said, take me to the hospital, I'm having a heart attack. I had no idea what was going on at the time, but I thought I was dying. Again, I get it. Anxiety can be crippling. But after a couple months alcohol-free, about 90% of my anxiety had disappeared. Thank effing goodness. However, there was still a persistent underlying anxiety that lingered around. For myself, and I know I'm not unique with this, anxiety has always signaled three things. Number one, I'm mentally living in the future. Number two, my identity, according to the ego, at some future moment is challenged. And number three, this isn't a bad thing, it's excitement. So these days, for the most part, the anxiety that I feel, and it's important not to incorrectly label this as bad, is a sense of excitement, it's exhilaration. If you are feeling anxious, regardless of what stage you are at in an alcohol-free life, it's important to recognize you're not alone and you're not fundamentally flawed. Anxiety rates among the general population are at an all-time high according to the National Institute of Mental Health. This jittery mood, which I covered a couple episodes ago, has given rise to what Rebecca Jennings at Vox has dubbed anxiety consumerism, which is the rise of products from fidget spinners, essential oil sprays, CBD oil, weighted blankets, and perhaps the most prolific item in this category of all time, alcohol. 
This new class of product represents a growing unease on the planet, which is why more people than ever are moving into an alcohol-free life. Just like we did with feelings of depression, if you find yourself anxious, take a seat, fill the belly with breath, and pull yourself back into the present moment. And again, this is going to take some practice, and I highly recommend picking up the book Energy Codes by Dr. Sue Mortar. I interviewed her in episode 214, and in this book, there are countless grounding techniques to bring you back into the present moment. Let's talk about stress. When we are primarily focused on an outcome and not the task at hand, we experience the accumulation of stress, which can be devastating to the equanimity in the body. When we perform daily tasks at work and home as a means to an end, or when all attention is placed on a future goal or identity and not the specific task at hand, stress will inevitably build. Stress always has an inverse relationship with presence. The higher level of stress, a lower level of presence and vice versa. If you're in a stressful period in life, most likely the ego has attached happiness to a future event which strips away any possibility of enjoying the tasks required to achieve a goal. Right about now seems like a good time to insert the infamous Ralph Waldo Emerson quote, Life is a journey, not a destination. So the most powerful remedy to stress, anxiety, and depression is to ground yourself in the present moment. In episode 217, I mentioned some great ways to do this. And this takes work, but it doesn't have to suck. In fact, I like to call this bliss work because it can be fun. Okay, before we hear from Nick, let's hear from ZipRecruiter. Hiring is challenging, but there's one place you can go where hiring is simple, fast, and smart. A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. With their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job. As applications come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one and spotlights the top candidates so you never miss a great match. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. Right now, guys, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address. That's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. E-L-E-V-A-T-O-R. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com forward slash elevator. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Nick, how are you? I'm doing awesome, man. How are you? Yeah, Nick, I'm doing great. Thanks for asking, Nick. Let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I have been sober for 111 days today. 111 days, and that is on December 8th, 2018. So December 7th was your last drink. Congratulations. How's it feel? It feels really good. A little bit surprising in some ways. I'm still kind of amazed that I've made it this far, (laughs) but in a good way. I'm pleasantly surprised at myself. Yeah, nice job. And I love those sobriety dates that are sandwiched right there in between the big holidays. You've got Thanksgiving and then you've got Christmas and New Year's. You don't, you don't hear those sobriety dates in between those dates too often because oftentimes they just roll right through and they say, you know what, January 1st, I'm going to get my new life started then. But Nick, not with you. And I'm excited to hear all about your journey. But before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living, your age, do you have a family? And most importantly, Nick, what do you like to do for fun? Sure. So I'm 32. Uh, I live in Vancouver, Canada. I work at a university in the career center. So uh, working with students who are looking to figure out what they want to do with their lives. 
I've been married for two years, um, but with my partner for five years. And what I like to do for fun, I'm still figuring that one out in sobriety. But I really just love spending time with people, having really good conversations, making deep and meaningful connections with people. And what do you like to do for fun? I love when I hear people say, you know what, I'm still, I'm still trying to figure that out, Nick, because as Jeff said probably 10 episodes ago, this whole thing is like in a science experiment. This is the time of our life where we can try some fun things. And what are some hobbies? What are some activities that are out there on the horizon that you've always wanted to do that you, you think you're going to try? Yeah, I feel a bit like a, a teenager again, like the good parts of being a teenager where you just you were you knew you were figuring out who you were, like how you wanted to exist in the world and how you wanted to spend your time. And that kind of curiosity, I would say, has come back in the last month or so where I've realized, you know, I gave a lot of my life to drinking and now I don't have that anymore. And that's actually opened up a lot of opportunity. Yeah, and it, and it continues to build this this experiment. And and have you heard of Dr. Joe Dispenza, Nick? I don't think so. Okay, and he has a book called You Are the Placebo. And I, I love to travel, and I, I love retreats, and I'm finding there's a way to blend the two. And so I, I just signed up for one of his, his retreats. It's this cruise that leaves from Rome, Italy, October 7th to the 17th. And it's just this exciting time in sobriety where really anything is possible and so, yeah, I'm going to do a meditation retreat in the Mediterranean with Dr. Joe Dispenza. And if anybody out there who's listening, you should join me. It's things like that that, like, you know, probably a few years ago, uh, you would have never pictured yourself doing anything remotely like that. And that, that's really exciting to me that now there's space for that. Space. That's a good way to say it. And the unknown, it really is where anything is possible. Before, I love to hike. I'm like, okay, I'm going to hike in the mountains of Montana. But now, you know, I'm going to go hike in the mountains of Croatia. Anything is possible. It's absolutely beautiful. And Nick, let's dive into your story. Give listeners a little background about your drinking. Describe your drinking habits, how much you drank. Did you ever attempt to moderate? When did you first realize that, uh oh, this might be a problem? And take a little bit of time with us, Nick. We're excited to hear your journey. Yeah, so I, I think I grew up in a, in a house where there was pretty normal drinking, but definitely fairly regular drinking. Through adolescence, drinking wasn't a huge part of my life. I don't have any stories of like going to parties and getting blackout drunk or, sorry. <laughs> Listeners, it's all it's all included in the interview, right? We can we can't stop ambulances, trucks, trains, all that stuff. It's just how it goes. True. Yeah. So I don't have any stories really about like major blackouts or, or things like that through adolescence. It probably wasn't until kind of my early twenties, as I you know graduated high school, began to get my own circle of friends, moved out, went to college, that drinking sort of increased. But it, I would say for the most part, still, it was something that I really liked to do. There was never a point, I think, where uh, I was drinking that I didn't enjoy it. I found out fairly early on that I don't know if it's my Scottish genes or what, but I have a pretty high tolerance for alcohol, which is not a good thing to have if you also are predisposed to having a drinking problem. No, it's not. No. So I found that often... Whether I was hanging out with friends or it was a, a party or something like that, I could drink a lot more than most people and also, quote unquote, be okay. 
And so people who were getting sick or passing out or doing really ridiculous things, I didn't have that same problem most of the time. But what happened then is it, it sort of normalized drinking large amounts of alcohol for me because I wouldn't get viciously hungover or sick. And so things just kind of, I think, very slowly escalated from there. I noticed problems in my early 20s where I definitely thought, okay, this isn't normal how much I like drinking. And it was sort of like once I got going, it wasn't that I couldn't stop, it's that I didn't want to stop. For the most part, I always felt in control of how much I was drinking, but in control in the way that I I just loved it so much that I was looking for this this feeling of confidence and peace and calm that I never felt when I was sober. I think just being kind of like a shy, awkward, weird person, it gave me a way to exist in the world. And for many years, I could do that. I didn't need that all the time to function, but it still, I knew that it was something that I was relying on when I was going out with friends or being, I was in some sort of social situation where maybe I didn't know a lot of people that it just helped me relax into myself a little bit. In 2010, I moved to Vancouver, and I'd had a couple of experiences with alcohol where I just had decided, you know, I'm kind of, I don't really like this. I don't like how much I'm drinking, and I would just stop for a few months. And then I started drinking again. I wasn't necessarily trying to moderate. I just wasn't going that hard. I wasn't getting drunk. I wasn't drinking every day. And so I didn't really have a, a sense. That was probably when I was about like 22, 23. Yeah. So Nick, let's let's dive into that for a second. What was the catalyst to say, hey, I'm going to go a month or two without alcohol and then talk to us after that. Did you after a couple of months, did you be like, OK, don't have a problem or OK, I'm feeling good. I'm going to get back into it. What was the reason for that? I just went through like this really messed up experience with my best friend at the time and the person I was dating. And it was just a lot of really toxic behavior and a lot of dishonesty. And I dealt with that mostly by drinking. And a lot of drinking was involved when all this stuff kind of went down. But I felt like in the aftermath of it, where I really felt I'd been sort of betrayed by the two people closest to me, I quickly realized that alcohol just made me feel worse. And alcohol had influenced how... I thought they had behaved. And so I thought, okay, I'm done with them and I'm done with this. And I was probably sober for three or four months and didn't really have to give it all that much thought. To me, alcohol was connected to just kind of a really terrible experience. And so I didn't see a a place for it. I didn't think, oh, I'm never going to drink again. I just kind of went, I just need a break from it. Sure. And when I started again, I, I would say probably for another year or two, it wasn't that bad, really. Like I, again, I wasn't getting blackout drunk. I wasn't drinking to get drunk necessarily. But very quickly then, what came back was that familiar feeling that every time I drank, I felt comfortable, I felt safe, I felt more confident in myself. And also as somebody that was, I think, just always lonely, it made me feel less alone. And Nick, did you reach a point because you, what you just said reminded me of something where you said the more you drink, you realize the more confidence you have, the less lonely you feel. I had that same experience, and I almost tested those boundaries to say, wait a second, the more I drink, the more confident I get. I'm going to try to drink a lot more to see if I can get a lot more confident. 
and it doesn't work that way. What was your experience with that? Yeah, no, it certainly doesn't work that way. I I think I did definitely, but I always was chasing that like perfect drunk, that feeling of being buzzed and just slightly out of control. That was what I was always chasing. That's what I really wanted. Yeah, keyword chasing. Chasing, absolutely. And you're chasing it because you can never quite get it back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe one out of every hundred times when I was drinking, I would have that same feeling where it was just this perfect equilibrium of feeling like I could do anything, like I was full of ideas, I was focused, but kind of loose. And in that, like, that state of flow that we get when we're, you know, our brain is engaged enough, but we've kind of got like a singular focus in front of us. But I definitely fell victim to the trap of, you know, if three or four drinks makes me feel that way, then five, six, eight, nine drinks is going to make me feel five or six times better. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, that's not what happens. The thing that tipped me off, though, to drinking becoming a problem was not that I was getting vicious hangovers or blacking out or doing really stupid things. It's that in order to just feel normal, in order to get to sleep, in order to function in a situation, I needed alcohol. And when did you realize that? It's really hard to pinpoint now looking back at it because I'm not sure of when I became totally aware of it, but I definitely knew that like, I would say, you know, when I was around 22, 23, and I was still trying to figure out what I was doing with my life and what I wanted to do, I was landscaping a lot. And I wasn't thinking about alcohol all day, but like it was a physically demanding job and I would get home and I would just want to sort of bliss out a little bit. And I just couldn't wait for that feeling to hit of like the first beer after a long, hot day of working 10 hours outside. But it wouldn't stop at that one. And, you know, when I started going back to college, I started realizing that like, oh, it's kind of fun to go to class like after I've had a drink or two with this sort of slight buzz. And it it built very, very slowly. And I don't know if that's that's typical for most people, but it, it was just like the hooks were in, I think, early on. And that's why it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly when I became aware it was a problem because it just slowly snowballed until I really was at a point many years later where I realized like I I have completely lost control of this. Nick, you just shine the light on perhaps, which is one of the most insidious parts about alcohol is it kills by inches, right? So other drugs such as Coke, meth, heroin, it doesn't slowly take over your life. It, it, It really quickly have the wheels in life come off. But with alcohol, it happens at such a slow pace that we're almost not able to see it as it's happening. And so when was the moment when you did stop and say, wait a second, alcohol is the factor. This is what's causing this unease in my life. There was lots of smaller moments, but when I really realized it and actually started to make some changes, and also when I first kind of said the words, I'm an alcoholic, addict to myself and knew it I'd probably thrown that around in my head for a couple of years but did that thing where I was like yeah but like probably not or I just I drank too much that time but when I like knew it it was about six or seven months after a good friend of mine died from leukemia and this was a couple of years ago and I just realized my world had become so so small 
when she died, I knew that I had a choice to make in terms of how I dealt with it. And it was really difficult to watch somebody dying because, and I mean, I was very lucky in that she got uh, a year after a terminal diagnosis of a third time of having leukemia. But I got used to coping with a friend who was dying. I was totally ill-equipped and unprepared for having a friend who was actually dead and gone. And I just isolated myself. I didn't want to do anything social with friends. I was always drinking alone. And it just built and built and built. And that's where the drinking really became like a dangerous, scary, uncontrolled thing is that I went from, you know, going out and getting a six pack of beer in a night and kind of slowly drinking it while watching TV to I would go out and get a bottle of wine. I would drink that in an hour. I'd have to go out and get some more beer. And that just continued to escalate until I was drinking two or three bottles of wine a night just to function. I was so sad. I was so alone and really just feeling sorry for myself. I didn't know what the point of life was. I mean, I had a good job. I had a good partner. I had all of these things going for me, but I was so desperately sad and alone and just had no idea how to get myself out of that feeling of of just this heaviness and just really, really dark, like unmotivated sadness. So how did you get out of that? I think I had realized, you know, like my partner is super supportive. And I had said to her probably a year before my friend had passed away that I thought I had a drinking problem. And she never pushed me or said anything or did anything to make me feel bad about it. She kind of just acknowledged it and kind of let me do my own thing. I mean, she'd ask me questions. Obviously, she was concerned, but kind of just let me tackle it in whatever way I, I felt was necessary. There'd definitely be times where she'd find empty bottles around the house and just be like, you know, if you want to drink, like, don't hide it from me. But I was just so ashamed of it and so embarrassed by by the fact that I couldn't control this thing. Sure. And when was this? You're 32 now. What? What's? How old are you at this moment? Yeah, so I, I think I was probably about 30, 29 or 30. Okay, so this is recently, yeah. So it sounds yeah. like you've entered the phase where both subconsciously and consciously you recognize that alcohol probably needed to go, right? And you're, there's empty bottles around the house. You're saying, okay, I can do this. Every other problem that I've had in my life in the past, just some willpower got me through it. I'm going to quit. It's not that easy. So walk us through this this phase before your sobriety date of December 8th, 2018, and the lessons you learned. Was there a rock bottom moment? How did you finally make the final push forward into sobriety? Yeah, so I, I think this will probably lead into my, like, uh, you might know, you, you might be an alcoholic if line. They usually do. But, <laughs> yeah. Here's what my drinking looked like at its height. I would go out, I would come home from work, I would buy some wine, and I would sit in my apartment and I would watch stuff on YouTube and Netflix and just be alone with my thoughts, feeling sad and lonely. And I'd usually end up by like late at night, I would be watching somebody talking about addiction and recovery. Mm. <laughs> and if you're consistently getting drunk by yourself and at the height of your drunkenness, you're looking for um, you know, a Craig Ferguson monologue about getting sober, you might be an alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, definitely. That's incredible. 
I think that there's a sober person trying to get out of every drunk person. It's just how much that you let that voice in. But like, I knew I had a problem and some part of me was desperately like rattling the cage being like, what are you doing? Like, this is not okay. You need to get some help. And so just as I like slowly crawled my way into an addiction, I think I was slowly crawling my way out of it that I, I also felt, I felt guilty and ashamed, but I also felt really desperate. And I knew that I wasn't actually that depressed of a person just feeling like I, I hated myself. I knew that that was because of alcohol, you know, and I'd have conversations with my partner over sort of from like 30 on, and I would kind of have little spells. I was trying to moderate drinking. I would give myself like, okay, you can drink three days a week. Of course, I'd always go way over it or I'd fail on day one and just be like, well, what's the point? You know, I'm already drinking anyway, so just keep drinking. And finally in like September of 2017, I think I was just so depressed and realized I really hated myself. And quite frankly, I just didn't really want to live anymore. Not one, like I could get up and go to work and go through the motions. But as soon as I started drinking, I just hated myself and had no idea what the point of anything was and felt like I'd lost all control. So I decided to go to counseling. And at my first counseling appointment, I walked into the room and I just said, like, I'm pretty sure I'm an alcoholic, but I like I definitely have a drinking problem and I need help. Wow. Nick, I got to comment on a couple things here. The last three minutes of what you, you've been saying, I absolutely love, especially the part where you said there was there was a small part inside of you that just wanted to get sober, that wanted to come out. And then, you know, while the addiction was taking place, the same unfolding process was happening as well. Because you're right, there's that inner voice that just wants to come out. It wants to bloom and say, hey, no more alcohol, dude. Let's stop this. And, and, and then it's the other thing is most of us squelch that voice with more alcohol. And you went into a therapist and, and, and didn't do the norm of, of not being honest about how much you drink. I know the first time I went to a therapist and I remember a therapist asked me, hey, Paul, do you think alcohol is the problem? Even though this was after Spain when alcohol clearly was the problem. It wasn't that I was lying. I just couldn't see it yet. So nice job walking in there and saying, yes, I need help. So what happened then? What happened then was I went to counseling really regularly. I also, I, I opened up and talked about, you know, I, I lost a good friend. I'm, I'm full of grief and sadness and, you know, I, I need help. And, you know, I, I worked with a number of counselors since then. Like they were student counselors because it's cheaper. Also, heads up, if anyone wants to go to counseling and can't afford it, look for places that have student counselors because they're cheaper. Uh, there's all kinds of tips and tricks on this podcast, guys. Exactly. Yeah. So they would go through their like six month practicums and then they'd kind of finish and I'd be like, yeah, I still need help and sort of send in the next student. Yeah. But they were all really, really great. And, you know, I learned lots of great things about myself. I learned lots of skills. And really the biggest thing I learned was I slowly learned how to feel things and recognize them as normal and start to be okay with myself. And to all of my counselors credit, None of them really tried to get me to regulate drinking or try things that probably wouldn't work. I, I had one counselor that said, you know, start journaling. Just write down, before you drink anything, just write down what you're feeling. Write down what time of day it is and write down how you're feeling. That really helped me start to see why I was drinking. And I gained a lot of tools. I gained a lot of self-awareness. 
I got much better at communicating. My relationship got a lot better because I got better at articulating how sad and desperate and lonely I felt, but I continued to drink and my drinking actually still increased. And it was like, the more I realized about myself, the more I allowed myself to feel things, the scarier those feelings got. Mm. And it was kind of like, okay, I guess, oh, I'm like becoming a more full person. And let's put the lid back down on that. Yeah, stepping into who you're supposed to be and not running from those feelings and emotions is scary, which in turn, like you mentioned, can almost ramp up the drinking as well. Yeah, so how'd you deal with that? I really leaned into it for a year. I, I, my line is I became a, probably the world's most self-aware alcoholic. <laughs> I love it. I could tell you why I drank, where I drank, when I drank, when I was most likely to drink, uh, what I was trying to avoid. And you had the journal entries to back it up. I sure do. Books of them. <laughs> yeah. And I continued to drink and I, my drinking escalated. It mm. continued to escalate for over a year. And it was probably around September of last year, September 2018. And I had listened to the Recovery Elevator podcast on and off. Like another, like, you might be an alcoholic if you're downloading sobriety podcasts and listening to them randomly. And then I would stop listening because it was too real. Like, I couldn't handle the honesty and it could it didn't quite click with me and so i'd listen to an episode and i'd be like yeah 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 but i was like afraid of how accurate it was and how much i felt like these people so i would like take it off my phone for like two months and i i i'd started listening to it regularly and then i listened to i think it was episode 186 with angie's story mm, yeah from atlanta yeah I was taking the bus home and I just remember her saying the words, you know, I just hated myself. And I got home and I put my phone down, I took my earphones out and I just bawled, like just uncontrollable sobbing because I, I felt so exactly like that. And I realized everything that I'd done up to that point, I'd learned a ton of stuff and learned all these coping mechanisms, but I had to quit drinking that was really the only thing left. I could gain all the self-awareness, all the tools I wanted, but without honestly giving it a real shot and not doing it by myself. I knew I was going to stay sad. I knew I was going to stay lonely. I knew I was going to stay drunk because I was trying to do all of this stuff by myself. Sure, I went to counseling every couple of weeks, but in between those times, I would just still sit by myself trying to think my way out of this problem like some magic bullet solution would arrive and I'd figure it all out and I would no longer need to drink or want to drink, but I was still drinking. <laughs> now, it still took a couple of months. <laughs> yeah. I think like most people, you know, I, I like to learn things the hard way and the slow way for it to really sink in. Part of the reason why I cried was also out of relief because I realized I wasn't alone. Yeah, actually, let's talk a little bit more about that moment when the tears came flowing. What did it feel like to fully lean in, to express those emotions, those energetic surges that have always wanted to express themselves? What did that feel like? And then what did it feel like directly afterward? It felt both terrifying. I felt very seen. I felt very naked, very vulnerable, and also so relieved. And I realized that, hey, you know, when it's late at night and you're drunk and you're looking up videos of other people talking about their experiences of addiction and recovery, it's because you're looking for a connection to other people. You're looking to connect to somebody else's story and that loneliness that I was feeling. It's like, you know, there's other ways of fixing this dude. Like, 
and I realized too that I'm like, there are so many people that are dealing with this exact same thing. This whole thing where you're going through the world by yourself thinking you've got the entire world on your shoulders and you're the only one who feels this way. Listening to that podcast, I was like, well, I know that that's like categorically false now. And I can't hide that. I can't, I can, I can just no longer claim that I'm the only person that feels this way. I know that that's not true. There's at least one other person. And I'm smart enough at least to know if there's one other person, there's probably a lot of others. That being said, it was still terrifying. Yeah, and so it is. what began was a, a, lot, a long series of day ones and promises to myself and really, really trying, you know, and having terrible hangovers and going, that's it. I can't do this anymore. Physically, I'd gained a ton of weight. I was I couldn't sleep well. I was getting heart palpitations. Like physically, I was really feeling the effects of it too. And so I was just like hellbent on getting sober. I remember like listening to Recovery Elevator and I'd hear the like little ads for Cafe RE and just being completely honest, I was like, who does this guy think he is charging people money to join this group and- What Facebook groups, yeah. The Facebook groups and everybody says it's so great and like this weird cult thing. And I was like, man, whatever, like fine. <laughs> the podcast is good. And I can say that because the, the follow-up to it is about mid-November, I, I went to my counselor and I was like, dude, I got like, the only thing left is to stop drinking. And I know that. And I was like, December 1st, I want to stop drinking. And he was just like, December, huh? <laughs> <laughs> cool. What's wrong with uh, tomorrow or today? Yeah. But also like, okay, so just, you know, the, the biggest time of year with the most triggers and all the holidays and family functions, that's going to be when you decide to dr quit drinking. Okay. But he was supportive. And I think it was probably, yeah, December 1st, I joined Cafe RE because I realized the, uh, the alcoholics reasoning of, I don't want to pay like 20 bucks a month to join a thing. I'll pay $40 a day to drink my face off. Oh, Nick, I got a good one the other day. Someone said they need, they need to cancel Cafe RE because they can't afford their DUI lawyer costs. And of course, I'm just, I'm going to, uh, best of luck, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, like you just said. 19 bucks a month for the amount we A, spend on alcohol, but B, with alcohol at the cost of the wreckage. Ah, those emails are hard to read. Yeah, and, the, and when I had that realization, I, I was just like, dude, shut up. Like, you can pay $20 a month to possibly save your life. Like, whatever it takes, this might not be the thing, but you need to add something and you need to change something. So, like, <laughs> you're an idiot and bad at math. Like, you can afford this. You can't afford to keep drinking, so like make an investment here in yourself. And right away, like I felt very welcomed into it. Like what so many people describe about their first AA meetings of of feeling kind of like they've arrived home or felt just like they didn't have to explain themselves. That's what I felt right away. Now I was still drinking, but I f I felt very differently about it. And for that first week of December, every time I drank, I had this weird out of body experience where. It was like, no matter how much I drank, I couldn't really get drunk, at least not in the way that I had enjoyed it in the past. And that feeling, that feeling of comfort and familiarity had started to leave. That every time I drank, I just felt horrible. Yeah, Nick, I'm pretty good at ruining alcohol for a lot of people, so I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you for that. <laughs> but also just, you know, I would, I would go home and I, I would watch some videos of people just checking in. And it was just the weirdest, smallest, seemingly like trite things 
about like you know some guy sitting in his car talking about waiting for his wife and just checking in but I still understood him we had different stories we were in different parts of the world but I understood him and his experience and how he felt and I knew that he understood me as well and I had that experience over and over again and somebody had mentioned the idea of bookending an event where you check in with your group or you check in with someone before you go to an event that you want to be sober through and then you check in after and I was like, that sounds like easy thing I can do, right? Like I've got my phone in my pocket, I can do this. And I went to a staff party on the 7th and I remember the whole day I was like, I'm not gonna drink, I'm not gonna drink, I'm not gonna drink, I'm gonna do this bookending thing. And like as I was leaving, I knew that I was already rationalizing and making the decision to drink. And I went and bought some wine and got some beer as well. And that night I just, I drank so much and I just could not get that same level of drunk and I didn't check in with the people I was talking to on Cafe RE. And I knew right away, as soon as I took that first drink, had I checked in, I probably wouldn't be drinking right then. Yeah. And that's when it finally sort of hit me. And part of the reason why I drank is I was like, well, if I check in, then I'm not gonna wanna drink. It's like, yeah, you idiot. That's why you check in, <laughs> to give yourself some accountability. And that night, like walking home, and I'd had a ton to drink. And like, don't get me wrong, physically I, I, I was drunk. But like in my mind, there was still this absolute clarity where I was just like, man, I'm done. Tomorrow, and it wasn't like the tomorrow that you always promise yourself. I was like, tomorrow you wake up, you check in with the group, you talk about this experience, you recommit, you reconnect, you do whatever it takes, you check in as much as it takes, and embrace this like you have something right in front of you that can help you and you know it can help you you just admitted to yourself it can help you and it's going to make you not want to drink so use it and so the next day i did that i woke up at six in the morning and i just started watching people's video updates and i checked in and i haven't had a drink of alcohol since Nick, you did an incredible job of describing the progression. There's two progressions. Number one, alcohol, it, it, the drinking increases. But there's also the voice inside the body, the gut, the intuition that becomes louder and louder. And it hit a crescendo with you where you were walking around. You said you were drunk, but there's this voice inside your mind that was crystal clear. And that's not the head talking. That's not the brain. That's the body, the gut, the intuition saying, look, the gig is up. That is so cool how you describe that. And, and what was the first week like, the first month? How'd you do it? Yeah. The first few days was a little rough, mostly just because it took so much damn work. Like I knew I had to change my whole routine because I'd been journaling and stuff. I already knew all the times a day where I most wanted to drink that sort of like witching hour of like 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. So I knew I needed to keep myself busy. You had commented, I think, on a post that I said where it was like I passed like eight or nine liquor stores on the way home from my walk home from work. And so having to change my route entirely so I walked past none was like I was taking the most circuitous back alley route home. <laughs> like anybody watching me from like a bird's eye view would have been like, where the hell is this guy going? Because it was not a straight line. But I just knew I, I couldn't even look at a sign. I didn't I wanted to avoid any sort of temptation. I would sit in the bathroom at work watching people's videos just to get myself back into the headspace where I was like, you're an addict. You need to know that when you move through the world. And if you're feeling any sense of craving, you need to reconnect to that knowledge and that part of yourself that knows that and you need to feel not alone. So 
get somebody's voice inside your head where you know you're not alone. And I would like, I'd be walking down the road with like, you know, almost like shielding my eyes from people with my earbuds jammed in, listening to a podcast, like repeating stuff to myself, like trying to not look at any liquor store signs and like bolting home. And I I probably did that for like two weeks of just really every day needing a ton of support. But just talking to people about how I was doing and just being honest. From day one, I felt like I didn't need to put up any sort of barrier or shield or any sort of pretenses because nobody else was. And so I just talked about what I was struggling with. And yeah, it still took me a while to open up. It still sometimes does to to be totally, you know, proactively honest about everything. But right away, I just felt so seen and so heard. I went to my first AA meeting that week as well. I didn't see the light or anything. Uh, I've been to a couple of meetings since. It's not a regular part of my recovery routine, but I still found it really useful. And I still felt that same sense of like all that people in the room. I was like, yeah, you guys are my my family. Like we know each other. I feel nothing but love and compassion towards you. And we're just people that like took, you know, took some knocks along the way and needed some way to get through life and to survive. And that's still my feeling is in whether it's in Cafe RE or in an AA meeting, but like we're the survivors. We are the the powerful people, the resilient people. We're also very tender-hearted, sensitive people for the most part. But thank goodness we found each other. And Nick, with 111 days, what's the biggest challenge you've encountered so far? It's a really good question. I think the biggest challenge so far has just been that sort of plateauing of going, okay, so I'm sober now. I plan to stay sober. I don't feel the compulsion to drink. So what now? And that honestly has been a way bigger challenge than white knuckling any of the cravings or or dealing with any of the cravings. It's just like, who am I? You know, I'm 32. I gave up eight or nine good years of my life to drinking and really isolated myself. So who am I and and what do I want to do? So I see this a little differently. I'm 32. I dedicated eight or nine years of my life to to be confronted with the next best chapter of my life. And it took me a while to get here too. Even a couple of years in my addiction, I still didn't know how to label it as good or bad. But right now, that decade of my life, I wouldn't have it any differently because it gave me the life I have today. And and, and, and guys, this this unknown, the, the what now, the what next, it's a scary part in the journey. It's fun to say, look, anything is possible, right? But the body at times will have chemical reactions and want to pull us back into the old routine. And, and Nick, this is, this is an exciting time for you. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. And, you, and you, you're embracing it. And listeners, if you're listening to Nick and, and saying like, oh, he, he seems like a cool guy. Well, he is. I had the pleasure of meeting Nick in person at the Recovery Elevator Live in Nashville event this past February. Uh, what was that event like for you? It was great. Like, honestly, I this is the thing is like, since I've been sober, I realized like, I'm actually a lot more confident in myself than I think I am. If I just allow myself to be myself, and especially around other recovering addicts, I'm like, I don't need to be anyone else but myself. They're not being anybody else but themselves. As soon as I heard about the Nashville event, I knew I had to try to get myself there some way or somehow. It's not anywhere near to where I am. I'd never thought of really going to Nashville, but I was just like, you got to find a way to get yourself there, man. Because <laughs> I just felt this deep longing and need to be around people. And like, you know, B12 
being a member of Cafe RE and, and see, these people are part of my daily life. They keep me sober. It saved my life. And I, I wanted to meet these people. I wanted to be around them. And, you know, I went honestly with pretty low expectations about what I would get. I, I went in knowing it was going to be a fast weekend. There's going to be a lot of people. I probably would have like maybe one or two deep conversations with somebody. But I was like, you know, don't get too psyched up about meeting so-and-so or, you know, you know, Paul's going to be there, but like, he's going to be busy. Just like, he doesn't know who, who you are. Like just, and right away, it was just such the opposite experience. I got to talk to so many more people than I expected and like deep, meaningful conversations. Even if all it was, was us sharing an Uber somewhere. You don't have to start with like, Hey, how's it going? How's the weather? You, you can pick right up from like, no, but seriously, how are you doing? And really dive into the serious stuff. And I love that about recovery that uh, perfect strangers feel like lifelong friends. And all these people that, you know, had seen their video updates, I'd been with them through struggles, they'd been through me through struggles, to just get to spend some time together, it didn't even matter what we were doing. It just felt so good. And on top of that, I was just really proud of myself for doing something totally out of my comfort zone, something with, where the social anxiety was high for me and a lot of people, and doing it sober and realizing like, yeah, I can get myself on a plane, fly into the southern states, meet a bunch of strangers and enjoy myself. That's my life now. And Nick, it sounds like you are getting good at listening to this gut voice, not the ear, but the ear behind the ear, listening with that ear, the ear behind the ear. You're getting good at this. And what is this gut, the intuition, the soul telling you to go next what are you going to do next in recovery how are you going to get month four five and six that's a, a great question and something that I've, i ask myself every single day um and it's only been in the last couple of weeks where i've started to really and actually since coming back from nashville i love being around people in recovery i'm a bit of an introvert at times but i i've always been curious about people i love talking to people and I love deep conversations about people's lives, big existential unsolvable problems. I love those conversations. I always wanna have them. I don't know where it will lead me next, but I want to continue my own sobriety. I know I, I have tons of work to do. I still see myself as a baby in sobriety. I'm grateful for every day, but uh, I know I have a lot more to learn. I won't say I only have 111 days. Thank you. I know lots of people, including yourself, will <laughs> rag on me for it. And I don't view it that way. I honestly don't. But I do know I'm still at the very beginning of a much bigger journey. But I want to work with people in addiction and recovery in, in some form, whether that's a formalized that becomes my career or is just something that I continue to do. Maybe one day uh, get more involved in a sponsor people. I never feel like it's a drain on me. I never feel like it's a burden or, or too much. It always just makes me feel so alive and connected to myself and connected to other people. So even if somebody's going through the worst day of their life, but they're committed to trying to figure out a way to beat addiction, I want to be there with them in that and, and help in any way I can. So I don't know, and it's kind of fun right now getting to, to think and, and experience different ways of doing that. But I just, I love being around people who are, are working on themselves and who are, you know, a little battered or broken and, and, and trying to find a way to heal themselves. I'm, I'm all about it. Hey listeners, we might've just witnessed Nick solve the whole what next component of his life. I don't know if you realize that Nick, 
But uh, hey, listeners, I can see Nick, right? We do Skype, we're doing face-to-face. And while he was talking about the next phase of leaning into the next part of his life, chapter two of Nick's life, his face just lit up on Skype. It did. Yeah. And I've had that feeling a couple of times in the last couple of weeks where as soon as I say it out loud, I'm like, oh, that felt good. Like yeah. I, I actually feel that. I'm not intellectualizing it. Like I feel drawn towards something. Yeah, so. Nick, and I saw you sign up for the Bozeman retreat. Let's talk more about this in person. I'm excited for you that because the, the, the possibilities are endless, endless in recovery. It's, it's so cool. And Nick, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be great. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Worst memory from drinking? <laughs> many, many, many of them. Probably should be more, but the memory is hazy on some of them. Any morning where I woke up and I knew I had an argument with somebody or I said something I didn't mean, but I couldn't remember what that thing was. I mean, often it was with my partner because I, I got so isolated. But waking up and knowing that you've hurt somebody you care about and you can't remember why is the absolute worst feeling in the world. And I wish I could say it had only happened once or twice, but you know, there was so many of those times where I couldn't remember. There was times where I realized I hadn't even said anything, but I had just thought it. And I just woke up with guilt because I couldn't remember if I'd actually had an argument with someone or said something terrible, or if I just had thought it in my own head. Do you remember a specific, oh shit moment indicating the gig was up? I would say definitely that last night of drinking when I was in my friend's apartment in the kitchen and I was watching people drink and it was, you know, late into the night and I was drinking scotch at that point and I don't really drink hard alcohol a lot and it was just like, I don't think you could have poured enough alcohol to make me feel any more numbed or blissed out or anything. It just, it wasn't working. It was like, it, it was all of a sudden water and it really sunk home in that moment where I was like, yeah, you're, you're done with this. Like this really is the last gasp. Two questions wrapped into one, you, best advice you've ever received and what advice can you give to somebody who's thinking about getting sober? I don't know if it's so much advice and anybody from Cafe Ari Blue is going to hear this and laugh because I say this all the time now, but we had a, a relatively new member say this and it's just stuck in the back of my head, which was talking about like reaching out for help and, and people were taking the tough love approach. And she said, you know, I, I'm at the point in life where I don't need the tough love. I just need the love. Mm. And that has stayed with me. So my advice is for people of like, look, it doesn't matter what the tool is or what the meeting is or what the group of people is, but looking for that connection and accepting love and giving it back will radically change your life and will radically alter how you you deal with your addiction and with your recovery um, reg- everything else you do will help <laughs> there's lots of little things but if you don't open up yourself and and just that raw nerve of vulnerability that we all hide with alcohol the minute you open that up to other people i think things start to change in a really profound way and the sober person starts to take over from the the addict person and before we depart, Nick, give listeners your own customized another You Might Be an Alcoholic gift line. We had some good ones earlier. I'm excited for another one. Well, I know a lot of people can relate to this, but I was definitely a bottle hider. Even though my wife knew I was an alcoholic and knew and found bottles, but I would th- thought I was real clever and found ways. So I used to slide them under the couch I'm sitting on right now. Um, so you might be an alcoholic if you go to slide a wine bottle under your couch and you hear it hit one bottle 
and then you hear that bottle hit another bottle and you hear this cascading clinking of rolling bottles under your couch because you're too lazy and you've just forgotten that you have like 12 wine bottles under your couch. Oh, I love it. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on 111 days. I look forward to meeting you in person in Bozeman, Montana this August 14th. Thank you. Right now, I'm the happiest I've been, well, for maybe as long as I can remember. And you know what? I'll take it. I deserve this. I've put in the work. (laughs) Damn, have I put in the work. But recently, and I'm talking about only in the last month, have I become aware of an unconscious pattern, a sub-personality, part of my identity, who says, nope, we're not okay with this. Recently, I have been experiencing an unprecedented amount of inner peace, but still there was this underlying pull. And I'm talking like 2 to 3% of the time, there was this underlying unconscious pull that was fighting against the happy life. Now, I am experiencing an unprecedented amount of inner peace, but I've become aware that part of my identity was relating to the guy who wasn't happy. That's part of me, right? And I can't get rid of this sub-personality with harsh language. I've tried that and it doesn't work. But what I can do is have compassion, speak to this part of my personality, and bring it along with me with love. So that's the plan. I'm just going to roll with this unprecedented level of happiness and inner peace. And I know that part of my personality that is shrinking will blend. It will meld with the more prolific part of my personality, which is, hey, dude, a happy life awaits and we're already in it. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys.